Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, the title of the message is Remembering Jesus. This is part one in a series we're doing called The Table of the Lord, where we're looking into communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. This week, we will be meeting together on Thursday night to assemble the bags for our Bag Hunger Outreach, which will kick off this Saturday. We'll distribute 2,000 bags around the North Shore to collect food for the food bank. And also in the coming days, we will let you know via our Facebook page or our website or our email list uh, the ways we will be helping with flood relief as the waters recede. So, set to the thought, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. chapter 22, verse 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters And say to the owners of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. Then they left and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover With you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again till the the fruit from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We're going to do a a little series for the next few weeks, uh, looking into communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Uh, I grew up in a tradition, I know every time I ask how many people came from a Catholic background, uh, a good chunk of the people, the majority of people of this church, uh, grew up Catholic. So you probably took communion a whole lot. Uh, I, on the other hand, grew up in a evangelical, Protestant, non-denominational types of churches, and I rarely ever remember taking communion. Uh, there was kind of this sense in Protestant churches is that if we take communion too much, we're going to uh, make it less meaningful, right? Of course, those same churches never applied the same logic to passing the offering plate. <laughs> it's okay if we get meaningless there. Uh, <laughs> just keep giving. Uh, but I want to spend a few weeks 
just looking at this thing that, that we, we've really taken effort over the past few years to, to bring the cent- central focus of our service to the, uh, to the communion table, to where we take, the, take communion almost every week here now. It's, it's the rule rather than the exception. But I want us to look into what this meal means. Why did Jesus give us this meal? Why is it one of the only sacraments celebrated by all Christian denominations around the world, no matter what, what flavor or how frequently they take it? So to understand this communion meal that Jesus gave to his disciples, we we must first understand the context because the Eucharist is actually a meal within a meal. They were celebrating Passover. And this is important because Jesus, he didn't introduce this communion meal at any other time in his ministry. He introduced it as they celebrated Passover, on the day that the, that the lambs were, were, were slaughtered for the meal, as, as all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, people would be gathering to celebrate this festival, it's right in the midst of that, just hours before he would go to the cross, that he gives this meal to his disciples and says, do this in remembrance of me. So in order to understand communion, we must first go back some 1,300 years in the Bible to the Exodus. See, the whole Passover meal came out of something that God had done in their history. And the Passover was the defining judgment on Egypt by which, G, uh, by which God set the, the Hebrew people free from enslavement in Egypt. The Hebrew people actually formed their whole national ethnic identity in 400 years of slavery. Imagine what that would be like to your psyche as a nation. I mean, in America, we've been, how, America's officially only you know, about 240 years old. Um, and we've got a national identity. We've got certain beliefs that, that form us as, as Americans. America. America. We have certain things that, that, that naturally come to us, certain ways that, that we view the world. And Americans have this, you know, if you go to other countries, particularly in Europe, people are like, they can spot Americans just very easily because we have this way we carry ourselves and this way that we think everybody in the world should think like us and we've got the best way. But imagine if as a people you'd grown up entirely in slavery, your whole identity as a people went back 400 years when the earliest groups of people that would make up your family became enslaved and you had grown up from generation to generation in slavery. And so the Hebrew people called out to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They, they cried out, save us, God. And so finally, God raises up this deliverer named Moses. And you've probably seen the movie. He goes in and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. God says, I want my people to come out in the desert so they can worship me. And what proceeds to happen is ten plagues, ten judgments on Egypt to try to get Pharaoh to loosen his grip. And there are a couple of occasions where Pharaoh is, is about to relent and let them go worship, but then his heart gets hardened. And so finally, the tenth plague, the tenth judgment on Egypt is the Passover. And God tells Moses, go tell everybody, the, go tell my people that tonight 
They will each take a lamb for each family. They'll slaughter this lamb. They'll put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And they will roast this lamb and eat this meal together. But this is no ordinary meal because you're going to eat it with your bags packed. Because you're going to be leaving. You're going to be hitting the road. And so they do that that night. And that night, any home that didn't have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn were taken. And the next morning in Egypt, there was wailing all over the land as from the, the house of the Pharaoh down to just common people discovered that the firstborn in their homes were dead. But this was the defining miracle. And this was the miracle that, that broke open the doors, that released them from captivity, from slavery, from oppression in Egypt, and began leading them into the exodus towards the promised land. And God freed them with this, this meal, this, this miracle. But he said, from this point on, you will celebrate this meal. Every time uh, this time of the year comes around, you will stop what you're doing and you will remember the Lord God that brought you out of Egypt. And so for the 40 years in the desert, they would stop what they were doing every time of the year at that time. And they would remember how God heard their cries in slavery. And then when they entered into the promised land, every year at the same time, they would remember how God had heard their cries in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years, 13 centuries leading up to this meal that Jesus was taking with his disciples in the room that night. And so when Jesus gives us the Eucharist, he's actually tying all of the symbolism, the message of Passover, centuries early, he's drawing all that story together and saying, there's a new Passover that's about to happen. There's a new exodus that's about to start. And it begins right now. You know, it was almost, I guess it was a little over seven years ago, Dina and I were driving back from Texas on Ash Wednesday and we we'd been on vacation out there and and we're we we decided i don't know why we started talking about church planning and we had never got on the same page about church planning even though we'd had many discussions over the years but that day in the car we really sensed that the spirit of god was speaking that it's time to plant a church and a few weeks later, we decided to plant that church in Covington, downtown Covington. And we embarked that year, 2009, the spring of 2009, on what would be one of the most exciting and terrifying years in our life as a family. <laughs> because we were getting ready to leave a church that we loved, that we were very much a part of, relationships that we had formed over years with people that we loved, particularly our own kids. My daughter at the time was in fifth grade. My son was in first grade, I think, second grade. And here we were moving to a whole new school system, the little town of Abita Springs, and, and moving in the middle of the year. It was crazy, crazy times. And, and we were doing this to do this crazy thing called church. And at the time, we had about 10 people who had signed up to uh, do this thing with us. And, and a few of them are still here after all these years. Gluttons for punishment. 
And I remember it was in, in, in the fall of 2009, they got us up on stage at the Vineyard in Kenner, and they prayed for us, and the church took up an offering, and we had enough money to get us about five months down the road to pay for my salary and all the bills for the church. And so I just said, we're just going to try this thing for five months, and hopefully by the fifth month we're okay. If not, uh, I was putting my applications in at Starbucks and different places. And... In January, the first weekend of January, we started with our, our first weekend service. At that time, it was on a Saturday night, and I think we had about 20 people there, and a full worship band, and a fancy bulletin done on Microsoft Word, and coffee. And over the next few months, we just began to see this, this community form, and it was so exciting to see what God was doing. And by that fifth month, even though all the funds that we'd been sent out with were going down every single month, (laughs) by that fifth month, we finally started going the other direction in the bank account, like right before we ran out of money. (laughs) And I was like, yay! (laughs) This this thing may actually take off at some point. And everything was going great until June fifteenth, two 2010. One of my favorite songwriters, Bruce Coburn, has a song where he says, Sometimes a wind comes out of nowhere and knocks you off your feet. It had been a normal day. It was right in the middle of the BP oil spill. I'd written a song about the BP oil spill blues that morning. I'd had a pretty low-key day. I'd actually gone to lunch with an old friend of mine from the South Shore that used to work on staff with me at the Kinder Vineyard. And then I get back to my office, which is one of the children's church rooms over there right now. And I began to work, and then I began to feel weird. I began to have a tightness in my chest and all kinds of crazy things, and I decided I would Google the symptoms because that's what you do. And I said, I might be having a heart attack. I'm like, that's crazy. I'm 37 years old. I'm active. I was running, you know, just two days before. I ran six miles out on the, the trace. I, I was very active. I, I didn't have... I never had heart issues before. I wasn't worried about heart issues. But I kept feeling pretty bad. And so, needless to say, I started thinking about going to the hospital. But there was a problem. For the seven months that we'd been here, we didn't have any health insurance. We had health insurance at my other place of employment. And we'd been trying to get health insurance for months, and we kept getting denied. And not because of me. And so, we... I decided, well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and go to the hospital, and and we'll just figure out how to pay for this later. Good thing I went to the hospital. They kept me there overnight. The next morning, the cardiologist said, we need to do an angiogram. And they they found a 99% blockage on this this artery on my heart, uh, which they affectionately referred to as the widowmaker. Because you're usually dead in about 5 to 10 minutes if you get a blockage like that uh, in that area. The, the cardiologist came out after they, they, you know, cleared the blockage and put us in there, and he talked to my wife, and he said, your husband really scared us. Uh, nobody was thinking they were going to find anything. And so we felt like, I mean, I felt like, wow, that was crazy. I'm glad to be alive. Didn't see it coming. Uh, I was in the hospital for about four and a half days. I, I missed my first weekend of church that weekend. And um, I remember sitting there the whole time, being that we had no health insurance, and I was trying to play the prices right. (laughs) 
And I'm trying to, to, to guess how much all this stuff is going to cost. Um, and the financial counselor told me, she said, uh, for the hospital, she said, look, um, you're going to get the bill in the mail in a few weeks. You know, it was the day that they were releasing me. She goes, don't freak out when you get it. <laughs> Just give me a call and we'll talk about options. So I was like, okay. Well, I, a few weeks later, we just got home from a vacation in Texas. I was trying to relax, and we had a very relaxing, low-key time. Everybody's, like, trying not to freak me out or anything. You know, everybody's being, walking on eggshells around me. Um, we get back. It's great. We, we check the mail, and sure enough, the bill from the hospital's there. So we open it up, and it was like, oh, the price is wrong, Bob. Um, <laughs> it was a little bit more than I had expected. I had no idea how much this stuff costs. So uh, the, the bill was $93,000. And that was one of, there was a, still a few bills yet to come, which would bring the total to around $100,000. And Dina and I had spent years trying to get out of debt, and we, we had gotten out of debt, and we were looking forward to hopefully one day, you know, being able to, to purchase a home here on the North Shore and actually be a part we were renting at the time. But, but immediately all those dreams began to dissolve, and, and it just, I was just, <laughs> almost had another heart attack. Uh, at, at that point, Dina said, why are you even getting upset about this? I mean, this is like, if this was a few thousand dollars, Maybe get upset, maybe get worried, maybe that's something we could work towards. But this is so beyond anything we could do. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. There's no use. And so I called up the financial counselor and I said, uh, you know, I got the bill. She said, well, come down. She gave me this, this paperwork to fill out. So I filled it all out. And then I spent one afternoon using my best writing skills. I was a pretty decent writer at the time. I was writing a lot. So I spent several hours one afternoon writing this letter. I imagined this committee of, of concerned doctors at St. Tammany Hospital who would sit down and they would be reviewing all the people who, who needed help and, and they would read my letter and they'd get choked up in tears and they're like, we got to help this guy out. So I wrote this big long letter and it was good. And I brought it to the, to the lady with my paperwork and she looked at the letter. She goes, wow, that's a great letter. I know, right? She said, but there, there's one problem. Uh, this is mainly done by, like, a computer program. It's, they just enter your numbers in, and she said, you want me to enter the numbers, please? She said, well, according to my calculations, they, they may write off 40000 like, I'm happy. I'm thankful, but we're still never probably going to be able to pay that off in our life. And so we went home and waited for a few weeks. And November 1st, 2010, I get a call from the hospital. They said, the hospital has agreed to write off 100% of your, your bills. And the, the lady who was, she was like, this stuff doesn't happen. <laughs> She's like, I don't know why they did that. I was like, it's my letter. Somebody read my letter. <laughs> um, but she said that they've agreed to do that. And, and, and my jaw dropped to the floor. I think I did a, you know, one of those end zone dances. I was, and then part of me was just like, did I even hear right? Or was just, you know. Uh, and so that day, I, uh, 
I didn't know what to do because I was so, do I thank some computer program? <laughs> you know, how do I even express gratitude? It, it seems so far beyond me. And I began that afternoon to think back about the Old Testament, how people like Abraham and Jacob and David, there were these times where they would encounter God in a profound way. God would show up and do something in their lives. And they would build an altar. They'd take a bunch of stones and pile them up and make some monument. So that next time they're in the area and they're walking by, they're oh, that was that time that God did this thing in my life. It'd be an altar of remembrance. And then I remembered about Passover. How the Jewish people used to take this every year. And no matter what they were going through, they would stop and they would put everything on hold. And they remember how God had heard their cries and had set them free. And I knew what we needed to do that night. So when Dina and the kids got home, I said, we're going out to dinner. And we're going to start a new family celebration that we're going to observe every year called God Takes Care of the Schroeder's Day. And so that night, I think we went to Trey Inn over here in Mandeville. And we sat there and we shared a meal together. And we just began looking at not just the way God had spared my life and, you know, freed me from this debt... We looked at all the things God had done in one year. And as hard as that year had been, and it was, I do say, it was a lot harder on my kids than it was on me. Because, I mean, their relationships. As, as hard as it was for us, we saw that God was all over the thing. I remember, like, right after the heart attack happened, I'm like, God, you know, right before the bill got paid off, I'm like, you know, if I was going to have a heart attack, God, couldn't I have had it like just a few months ago when I had health insurance? And yet I felt like after going through all that, like God was trying to say something, that my confidence wasn't in me or the best I could do, even the medical system. It was in God, and he had us. And I think that was an important thing for us to even know as a church at that time. That, you know, God was for us. He was going to get us through this thing. And so every year since then, November 1st comes, we celebrate God Takes Care of the Schroeders Day. We go out to dinner somewhere, and we just talk about the ways that God has intervened in our lives, how we've experienced God in the last year. And it's become one of my favorite things with our family. It's brought us closer together and brought us closer to God. It's an altar, a place of remembrance. I share that because the communion table, when we come to this table, Jesus says, as he's breaking the bread that night, as he's pouring the cup and passing it around, he says, do this to remember me. I did a little study retreat this week. I'll do these occasionally where I try to get away for a few days and lock myself up in a cabin and just read and pray and uh, you know, reflect on things. I got to thinking this week that Jesus never talked much. He never gave us any theology about the cross. You know, I mean, for the, the center point of the Christian faith, Jesus didn't do a lot of teaching about the cross. He told his disciples he was going to the cross. 
He mentioned a few things kind of in parables, but Jesus didn't really give us theology or doctrine about it. He didn't explain it on the front side. It took people like Paul and, and James and Peter and John to kind of unpack the meaning of the cross. Jesus didn't give us a teaching on the cross. He gave us a meal. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood. The blood of a new covenant shed for you. Jesus in that first communion service, that meal within a meal, that Eucharist that was surrounded by the context of the Passover feast, Jesus was saying, I am the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood is on the doorpost of the universe. Death shall not touch you. Death shall not win. It is my body broken for you through which you find wholeness and healing where you're connected relationally back to God, to one another, to your own hearts. So when we come to this table, we remember that about Jesus. We remember who Jesus is, his incarnation, his stepping into our world, becoming one of us, facing every single thing that you and I will ever face. Facing the cruelty of the cross. And on the cross, offering forgiveness. With his last dying breath. When we come to this table, we remember Jesus. But I don't think we just remember Jesus in those senses, you know. Well, yes, we remember the stories of Jesus that we read in the Bible. But I think today, as we come to this table, we remember Jesus in our own lives. What's your story? How have you encountered God? How has God revealed himself to you? How has he rescued you? You know, I tell my own kids, we have these conversations with our kids all the time about God. And one of the things we say so often to our kids, we're like, you guys didn't know us when we were really messed up. Not that we've arrived by any way. It means we tell our kids it's only because of Jesus. We were people who were angry and addicted, going from one meaningless relationship to the next, always trying to fill some emptiness that couldn't be satisfied. We're living in jealousy and pride. And God rescued us. He put us back together. You may think we're messed up now, but we've come a long way, baby. God intervened. And, and, and when we try to tell our kids about Jesus, we're like, we are the proof that there is a God. <laughs> the very reason that we're even here still to this day is because there is a God. But what's your story? How have you encountered the love of Christ? How has God freed you? 
How have you experienced God's provision for you or healing for you when, when you know? I mean, when I look back to that story, look, I, I want to be clear. I didn't have faith for any of this. I mean, it's not like we got blessed because I was just naming it and claiming it. And I had, you know, I had it off. I, I was like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do this? I, I, I was, oh, ye of little faith. It's the grace of God. So I put a few reflection questions for you to ask yourself this morning as we get ready to come to the communion table. How have I experienced God's care and provision in my life? Just look over the last year. How has God taken care of you and provided for you? As you come to the table today, what does the broken bread And the cup, speak to me today. What's the message that Jesus speaks to you as you take of this bread, you dip it in the cup, you internalize it? What is God speaking to you in this moment? You know, I told Dina and the kids that first God takes care of Schroeder's day. I said, you know, here's the deal. Today we're celebrating this meal, the first one, and it's a time of blessing. I mean, heck, I cheated death and won the lottery all in a few months. But there may be other years where we celebrate this, and there, it's lean times and difficult times. And so maybe the God takes care of Schroeder's Day. Sometimes it's more of a plea for help. I believe that's the way it was for the, for the Hebrew people. There were times where they took the Passover meal and things were good. The crops were coming in. There was an abundance, a harvest. Then there's those times where they take the Passover in captivity in Babylon. Or in Jesus' day under the captivity of Rome. Where it was a way of saying, God, remember what you did back, back then. Do that for us now. When you come to this table this morning, is it thanking God for the abundance of goodness in your life right now, or is it a cry for God to intervene again? And then finally, what is your prayer of remembrance and thankfulness to Jesus today? If you could just put it into words, how you remember Jesus today or what you want to just thank Jesus for, just think about whatever thing you'd want to say to Jesus today as you remember him. I love that the communion table, it's not a teaching, but it is a message which we partake. We taste freedom. (laughs) In the bread. We taste life in the cup. We internalize it. It nourishes us physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. It doesn't get at us through our head. It gets at us through our physical body. What is Jesus speaking to you today? And what is your prayer to him as you come to this table? I'd like to invite Zach up here. Just play a little music as we go. And 
And I'd like to invite the people I've approached to uh, serve communion this morning. And as you come to the table today, just break off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. As you come down, receive from Jesus this morning. Feel free to make your way up. <clears throat>